Thank you, James and worship team. Another spectacular job. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts, um, not 14.1, let's go with 14.19. That's my, that's my bad. Billy Graham doesn't do this for you, but see, I care, so. Hey, Dave, let's throw it up here. Acts, 9, Acts 14, verse 19 through 20. Second. Is that red? All kinds of interesting technical difficulties today. I guess we'll try to work off of this. I, I was going to kind of walk around today. But I guess I'm going to be stuck. But that's, that's probably a good thing. Uh, let's start over. I was born at a very young age, and I was very close to my mother at the time. But fast forward to the second half of the sixth grade. And I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, from the second half of the sixth grade through the end of the ninth grade. And during that period in the 1960s, uh, a coach by the name of Paul Bryant, he was known as Paul Bear. Bryant, or the Bear, or Bear Bryant, was the head coach at the University of Alabama. And he's a very famous coach, and Joe Namath played quarterback for him, and Kenny Stabler, and uh, Steve Sloan, you may not have heard of him, but he became a Southern Baptist evangelist, a very wonderful guy. But uh, Bear Bryant was kind of a legend, living legend, and they won several national championships during that period. And I was a good Baptist boy. At the time, I uh, attended Shades Mountain Baptist Church in Birmingham. And I remember seeing or noticing for the first time how excited, how seriously, I should say, some people take college football. And I totally get that now, because I'm a big uh, OSU fan, as you probably know. But uh, I was just looking around at my church during the height of kind of bear mania, and just saw how seriously people took the wins and really the losses and one of the sayings that these good Baptist men would say, and they're kind of just halfway joking, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but they would say things like, you know, these football games are not a matter of life and death. They're much, much more important than just that. And, and they were kidding, of course. That was hyperbole. But, you know, life and death really isn't a joke. And our passage this morning... Uh, will allow us to emphasize a biblical principle that for believers, death is an enemy, but it's not the end. Uh, I know a profound but uh, obscure pastor who once said, no one is really ready to live until he or she is really ready to die. And the great thing about the good news of Jesus Christ is because of his person and his work, in His grace, all who believe in Him are good to go. For us, physical death is an enemy, but it's not the end. For the believer, physical death is our consciousness, our soul, leaving our body and being transported to the blessed, welcoming presence of our Savior, 
our God, our Lord, our best friend, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to think about matters of life and death as we see Paul in a very close brush with death in Acts 14, 19 through 20 this morning. But uh, just leave that up. Uh, let's spend a few minutes in prayer just for uh, that we'll be teachable to God's word. And as always, we want to pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. If you haven't met Harmony's sister, uh, she's here. This, I mean, her mother. I mean, uh, she looks like her sister, like her younger sister, but it's actually her mother. Uh, so we're, we're, you get the award for the longest drive to church today. We appreciate that. But Lloyd, uh, you would lead us in prayer in that direction, okay? For some reason, we had this perfect storm of just a whole bunch of people going out of town this weekend, and uh, I just want to assure Pam and Homer that it's not because you're back in town. It was just totally a coincidence. It has nothing to do with you being here. And also, I want to congratulate Mike on doing a wonderful job with the announcements. And he really did a wonderful job with the announcements and um, the call to worship. But you're going to have to work on the happy birthday thing, okay? Because you're the first guy that did that worse than I did, which is why I don't do announcements. I mean, yeah. You know, it's amazing. A song like that, that literally... if you can sing that, you're not having a stroke. Everybody knows it. You get up here and make the announcements, and I just, one time, just drew a blank. I didn't remember how it went, you know. And, uh, I know how that can happen, so. Yeah, you know, for uh, believers, death is an enemy, but it's not the end. You're, you're turned to Acts 14, but let me read a, a portion of Scripture that means a lot to me. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. If Christ has not been resurrected then our apostolic preaching is worthless. Your faith is worthless. Moreover, we are false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he resurrected Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead aren't resurrected. For if the dead are not resurrected, not even Christ has been resurrected. If Christ has not been resurrected, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ, have perished. They don't exist anymore. If we've hoped in Christ, in this life only, and there is no life after death, there is no resurrection of Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and we sure do, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, and then will come the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all other authority and power. You know, the scripture talks about the dynamics of life and death from Genesis to Revelation. That's one of my favorite statements. I also love the Old Testament statement in Psalm 73, where the psalmist, after being mad at God for a while because of the unfairness of life around him, realizes, you know, I didn't factor in eternity. And he says, uh, when I was angry at you, I was like a dumb animal. And yet, nevertheless, you hold me by my right hand. And who have I in heaven but thee? 
My heart and my flesh will fail, but thou, O God, are my portion and my strength forever. And then later in 1 Corinthians 15, which is called the resurrection chapter, with good reason, right? We read this. The dead will be resurrected imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then, not yet, but then, in the end time, shall come to pass the saying, Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my fellow believers, my beloved, in the meanwhile, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're going to look at uh, the implications of the empty tomb as we look at two little verses in Acts 14, verses uh, 19 and 20. And I want to do two things. I want to talk about the setting and the context for these two verses. And then I want to talk about the scripture and the content of those two verses. So let's talk about the setting and the, uh, the context for a moment. We're right in the middle of the first missionary journey, which according to Dr. Harold Conan's Cambridge PhD dissertation called The Fading of the New Testament, took place from April 48 A.D. through September 49 A.D. That's about, what, 19 months or something? And we read these two chapters and we go, okay, there was some transit time involved in each day, a couple of weeks here, a couple of months there. But you're looking at 18 months out of his life. Uh, we went to China for slightly less than 18 days. And it was a mind-bending, mind-life-changing experience. But uh, these guys, Paul and Barnabas, are going to be investing roughly 18 months of their life in this thing. And you remember, that's kind of a, a wide shot, if you can kind of expand that. They start from Antioch Bible Fellowship in Syria. Go across the island of Cyprus, come up here to the underbelly of Turkey. Uh, in Perga, John Mark uh, defects, from, gives up. So we've got a three-man team, now it's a two-man team. Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, and then to Iconium, and then to Lystra, that's where we are today. Then to Derby, and then they backtrack, go back to their cities again, and sail back home and go from there. And it takes about 18, 19 months for them to do that. Some highlights... Go back to chapter 13. At the end of the road in, on the island of Cyprus, the proconsul, the Roman governor of uh, the island, comes to faith. And we read about that in 13 verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So we're seeing some interesting things happen. That's the first time you've got a direct, positive response from a major Roman political leader right there on the island of Cyprus. Then we go up to Perga, and as you know, 1313. Now, I'm not superstitious at all, except uh, I'm going to continue sitting exactly where I sat yesterday when I watched that OSU game. I'm, that's where I'm going to be sitting when we play Texas next week. I'm not superstitious, but I don't want to mess anything up, okay? Uh, but if you are superstitious, you might think, golly, if you got a verse 1313, that's got to be bad, and it is bad. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, where the proconsul had believed, and came to Perga after they landed in uh, uh, the, the seaport and then went inland about 15 miles. 
Uh, but John, you know him as Mark, his name's John Mark, he wrote the Gospel of Mark later, left them, defected, quit, gave up, and went back to where his mom was in Jerusalem. So we have that issue. Now we're going to go from Perga, right there, due north, 100 miles, to Antioch. Not Antioch of Syria, but Antioch of Pisidia. And there, notice in chapter 13, verse 38 39, Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches Christ from the Old Testament. He says, Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's the issue and the issuer of eternal life. All who believe in him can have their sins forgiven and citizenship in heaven. And if you look at 38 and 39 of chapter 13, after a long, a synthetic survey of the Old Testament, focusing on the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fact, Paul says, therefore... Let it be known to all y'all in the synagogue that through him, through Jesus Christ, not through uh, the law of Moses or the First Baptist Church or Dallas Theological Seminary or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, is being offered to you. And through him, everyone who believes, pistuo, active, receptive trust. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. It's my fault. I can't fix it by my own religiosity. I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to rely on the merits of the work of Christ. I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. Through him, everyone, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, black, white, rich, poor, American, Iraqi, everyone who believes is freed from all things, anything that could be brought against you in a court of law, in heaven as it were from which you could not be freed through just obeying laws, even the law of Moses. So a very clear presentation of the gospel, a nice picture of Paul's preaching there in the city of Antioch. But uh, we keep moving because of persecution. So we go from Antioch to where? Follow the arrow, where we end up? Boom. Iconium. Look at Iconium. Look at chapter 14, 1 and 2. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. In Iconium, we moved from Antioch to Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks who were interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believed. But the Jews who disbelieved in that synagogue stirred up the minds of the Gentiles in the city at large and embittered them against the brethren. Drop down to verse uh, 7. And that's not what I want, is it? Um, go to verse 5. Uh, go to verse 4. Okay. I'm going to skip over verse 3 for some reason. But uh, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. And by the way, verse 3 just says they stayed there several months anyway, despite the initial division of the city. And the bottom line is after several months of ministry, the people in the city overall are still divided. Some like Paul, some loathe Paul. Some have embraced the gospel, some have criminalized the gospel. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews in that city with their rulers to mistreat and stone, to execute, uh, execute Paul and Barnabas, they became aware of it and they got out of town and they went to Lystra and ultimately to Derby. Now, we looked at uh, Lystra last time, so they left Iconium to go down the road to Lystra to get away from the, the, the opponents who wanted to kill them, 
And uh, there we had this crazy situation where they come into town, they do a miracle, and in verse uh, 11, kind of the middle of the verse, the people of the city who are Greek pagans think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, lowercase g, like Zeus and Hermes, for instance. They say the gods, middle of verse 11, have, come to, have become like men, have become visible and, and walked among us, have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, and Zeus, of course, was the king of the gods. He was the big, uh, tall, handsome guy. And Paul Hermes was the short, bald guy, but was a good talker because Hermes, or Mercury, was the messenger boy of the gods. And so they literally wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas uh, were shocked, and they just said, no, we refuse to be worshipped, and we're just like you, and you need to, to know about God just like we do. That kind of way we left it last week. And so we stopped at verse 18, even saying these things, Paul and Barnabas saying, don't worship us, let's think about God and let's go with that. Uh, with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. It's important you see that. Uh, this city is on the verge of worshiping Paul and Barnabas in all the way through verse 18, Nancy. But pretty soon they're going to flip and go to the opposite extreme and they want to kill Paul and Barnabas, okay? So here we are. We're going to look at the last two verses here, chapter 14. We're in Lystra. You know, some people pronounce that Lystra. All the my teachers in seminary called Lystra, and that's what we're going to go with, okay? If it's wrong, tell me in heaven and I'll correct it. But, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Pentecost is never wrong. But here's what we're going to see in these two verses Paul is stoned. I mean, they, they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. He becomes unconscious, seemingly killed. But he was supernaturally resuscitated such that he and Barnabas were able to walk out of town the next day. Uh, look at verse 19. But Jews, Jews who had rejected and criminalized the gospel in the previous two major cities, Antioch and Iconium, but Jews who had rejected the gospel came from those two other cities and having persuaded the crowds in Lystra that a few days before were wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas, right, Jane? They're wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas as Greek gods, and now they're going to see them as spiritual enemies. They stoned Paul. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. They thought he was unconscious, maybe in a deep coma, and they dragged him out of the city. You know why they dragged him out of the city? Uh, I didn't realize this, but according to I. Howard Marshall, and you, you can ask uh, James about I. Howard Marshall. He's the real deal as a New Testament scholar. This would have been like a lynching. And the Roman government was happy to execute bad guys or anybody they didn't like, but they didn't want people to take uh, the law into their own hands. This would have been a lynching without official government approval. So they dragged this guy out of town hoping that people would just soon be demolished by an animal or something uh, to kind of keep from any legal liability. That's what's going on there. So the, the idea that, well, these are Jewish people, they didn't want to... Uh, put cooties in the city. These people aren't thinking like that. They're just trying to cover their tracks. So even what they're doing, they realize it's, it's against Roman law, much less against uh, what God's trying to do to them and through them. Um, and they dragged him out of the city, which tells you what? He's unconscious, right? He's unconscious. They're not going to assume he's dead if he's saying, hey, don't drag me out of the city, right? Because most dead people don't say stuff like that. They talk about other things, you know, more important things. Now, uh, so they, they assume he's dead, and we know now you can go into deep, you know, um, 
brain switch off in a deep coma and appear to be dead and breathe so slightly you can't even tell the difference. So something like that happened. Just notice a couple things that jumped out at me here. Just how fickle is human fame? And just, you know, for several verses there, eight verses, they want to worship Paul and Barnabas and now the same group. Uh, having been incited by outside agitators, want to kill him. Notice that. All, all the riots that have been happening in the last year in inner city have been incited by outside agitators who have a vested interest in having people angry and doing things like that. Um, it's always incited by outsiders, and the locals are convinced they're being repressed and they want to burn down all the businesses in their area and then complain about not having any jobs. So it seems counterproductive, but that's what happens there. Um, this hasn't happened to me in a while, but you know, I've been a pastor since 82. I know it's hard to believe somebody who looks as young as I did, and have been a pastor for over 30 years, but a total, but I figured out, I'm not sure anybody in seminary told me this, but I figured out pretty soon in my pastor, I think I figured this out in Shreveport before I came here, the Lord, the Lord gave me six and a half years to figure out how to kind of do what I'm supposed to do before I came here so you wouldn't have to watch me totally and miserably fail, but uh, so that was a good, good training for me, I think, but uh, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, that's that's in the Bible, right? Nietzsche wrote that, so it's got to be in the Bible. Well, I'll quote that with approval, and it's a terrible, he's a, usually he's not a good guy, but uh, this hasn't happened to me in a long time, but it happens from time to time. And even in Shreveport, I figured out, if you have somebody visit your church as a pastor, and when you first meet them, the first thing they want to do is tell you how terrible their previous pastor was. You know, maybe the first time I thought, well, that's good because she's not going to want to go back there and maybe she'll like us. I may have thought something like that, but I figured out pretty quickly that anybody, that's the first thing they tell me. They're going to be saying the same thing to another pastor about me in six weeks or six months or six years. That's the way those people work. It's always the pastor's fault. And let me tell you how I've been wrong by the pastor. So, but typically those people will come in and they don't like their old pastor, so they think I'm the greatest thing since popcorn. And that never lasts very long with me, you know. Randy Sutherland can probably fool him for a couple of years at a time, but man, maybe two weeks is all I get. Um, and that's about it. But yeah, pe people are very fickle, you know, and they'll just break your heart sometimes. But it happens, you know. It's kind of the nature of the human condition. How persistent is human hate? I mean, these people got to have things, better things to do in Antioch and Iconium, but they made the time. Yeah, you know, I found out a long time ago. If you really want to do something, you'll probably find a way. If you really don't want to do something, you will definitely find an excuse. I mean, that's just the way we are, you know? So uh, these people got a lot of things to do, but they really, 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 in Antioch and Iconium, want to find Paul and kill him. That's really a priority for them. So they will take the time and the money to be in that position. So you see how persistent hate is. Um, I remember learning a, uh, a chain of uh, hate that you want to avoid. It's got five links in it. Unfulfilled expectations. Even if you've got unrealistic expectations. Unfulfilled expectations lead to uh, hurt and disappointment. Okay? Disappointment and hurt nursed leads to anger. You're angry at the person or whatever. They disappointed you. <coughs> anger turns to bitterness and you nurse that long enough and you hate 
whomever or whatever did whatever you think they did to you. Unfulfilled expectations. They may be totally unrealistic. Some, some people who are always mad about something and are always just psych, psychologically always messed up and stressed about something, trust me, they have unrealistic expectations about life. You know the proverb that says, where there are no oxen, the stall is always clean, that you're better off with oxen, even though you have to shovel manure every day, than without oxen, no milk without manure, as the rabbi said. You, you've got to have realistic expectations about life. That's what Romans says. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you going to renew your mind? You've got to get divine viewpoint in there. So unfulfilled expectations is the disappointment and hurt. I hate to see people hurt. I don't like hurting people. I don't like to see people hurt. But often people are hurt because they have unfulfilled expectations that aren't reasonable. Okay? Uh, we nurse that hurt and we get angry. Now, anger is just energy that can be directed lots of different ways, Caitlin. You can blow up at somebody that you're mad at. You can clam up and get an ulcer or cancer. Or you can wise up. Look at your expectations. If they're legitimate, deal with the source. Don't tell five of your friends to pray about Pastor Brad, what a jerk he is, or whomever you're mad at. Nobody ever gets mad at me anymore here, so I can use myself as an example there. But whatever it is, man, look at it. But once people get to the hate stage, they go through those links, they typically hold on to hate. The enemies of the gospel here are convinced that Paul is not worthy of life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness, and they want to take him out, and they think they're doing God a favor. And they're not. They're on the opposite side, but they can't see that. So how fickle is human fame? Uh, gone here today, gone tomorrow. How persistent is human hate? How painful identification with Christ can be. Paul was stoned. They threw rocks at the man. He's bleeding. He looks horrible. His body, unconscious, was dragged outside the city limits to rot. They were convinced he was dead, or they would have kept throwing more rocks at him. But here's the thing. You know, if Paul had just had enough faith, Nothing bad like this would have ever happened. That's the tragedy of this passage. It shows you how little, how depleted his faith was, right? There's actually a school of thought in American Western Christianity that teaches that kind of garbage. Uh, faith is not a force outside of God we can wield like a crowbar to pry things out of his hands. Uh, faith is trusting that God will give us everything we need so we can be and do everything he wants us to do and be, and focusing on that. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Everybody knows Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the faith chapter, the hall of faith that's sometimes called. You have all these amazing history, uh, this, this summary of the history of the Bible with all these wonderful uh, heroes and some great things that happened to them, many of which was uh, unique kind of miracles that happened to some of these people. But those are according to Scripture because they're unique. They don't happen to everybody every time, regardless of how strong your faith is. And in Hebrews 11, a lot of people don't get to past, I guess, 35, and they just stop. I mean, verse 35 lists some amazing miracles. Women received back the dead by resurrection. Uh, others were, not, were tortured, not accepting the release. That might, they might receive a better uh, resurrection. And then others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Apparently Isaiah was sawn in two. 
That would be a bad way to go. Uh, but we've got beheadings of Christians now. You know, that, that's not a crisis. Anybody, any other group is being targeted. That's a crisis. I mean, the UN's got to stop. The United Nations has got to stop. I mean, the president's going to stop. You can do anything to Christians, and it doesn't matter. They're going to put up with it. Sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword. They went about. These are notice the way he's going to describe them in a minute. They went about with total poverty being hunted, persecuted like animals, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, people of whom the world was not worthy, some of the greatest people of all time, who far surpassed the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Brad McCoy, or even Billy Graham, aren't even listed in the Bible, but God knows them, and you're going to meet them in heaven. They're going to have the Congressional Medal of Honor on their, on their robe. Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. God can't be in the middle of that. Yeah, he can be. He's right in the middle of all that. And it goes on from there. Uh, this idea that, you know, if, if I am faithful and I love the Lord and I'm living out the faith, nothing very bad will ever happen to me. And if it does, it'll get fixed real quick after a prayer meeting, is a toxic premise. The Bible does not teach this. It doesn't line up with biblical teaching. And it's going to lead to disappointment, uh, hurt, anger, bitterness, and hatred. That's what happens. But there's a whole segment of Christianity that teaches this. And I think of these guys who teach this. You've heard of pyramid schemes? You know the pyramid scheme? It cannot function. You have to constantly, you eventually run out of money. These guys, I won't, should I mention the names or not? I won't. I should, but I won't. Joel Olsen. Uh, $13 million for advance for a book he didn't write, for a book a ghostwriter writes. And he'll say, you know, if you have enough faith, you'll always be healthy and wealthy. You'll have lots of money. You want to worry about money? Look at me. I got a lot of faith. Look at all the money I got. You're at the top of the pyramid scheme, man. You're scamming us. All these ladies are sending you their social security checks. Of course you've got a lot of money. You made $13 million for uh, authorizing your name and picture that's going from a book you didn't write. Now, to be honest, the ghostwriter takes his sermons that somebody else writes and puts them in a book so that he can go to Larry King and say, look, I wrote this book. You know, It works for me. I'm, I'm healthy. Yeah, you know what? He's 38. Wait till he gets to 58. Everything's going to start hurting, and most of the stuff that doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore. So that's just me. Uh, and, uh, you know, if the uh, economy collapses and what we're doing now is not sustainable, uh, suddenly it won't work. In the, in, the, in the third world, Christians don't believe in this garbage because they live constantly being hunted, barely enough to eat. They realize that uh, we've got something much better to look forward to. God will give us what we need now, but he's not necessarily going to make us rich and healthy and fancy and, and uh, give us everything we think we, we want and need. We're talking about uh, the scripture, the content of this passage. And let me say one more thing about, uh, actually, let's go to verse 20. Let's go to verse 20. That's all, I got. That's all I'm going to say about verse 19. Martha Ratliff used to say, I can't believe you can go for an hour on one verse. Well, listen, I could go longer, but we're only going to go about 45 minutes. I'm at 26 now, so that's why I bring, I'm not making phone calls up here. I bring this up here so I can know how long I've talked. That's, that's, this isn't my phone, it's my watch that happens to, Receive phone calls. That's, that's what that is. Verse 20. But when the disciples, that is the handful of believers in Luster, including the guy that got healed from his lifelong lameness, he's a believer, I know that, 
gathered around Paul after the crowd that killed him had left, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, uh, he went with Barnabas down the road to the next city of Derby to continue the second missionary journey. Uh, one cool thing about miracles is it's never too late for a miracle. And God's timing, his will, his way, if he's going to do a miracle, it's never too late. You don't have to give up because he can, he can do it at the last minute. He could have done a miracle to have the stones just deflected, put a you know a force shield around Paul, Deborah, so all the, the rocks would miss him, and he could have done that. But he let Paul go through the horrific trauma, and wow, I hope this doesn't happen to me, of, of being stoned. But then rather than letting him die, he puts him in a deep coma, and he resuscitates him. Uh, so uh, God's timing, God's will, God's way, is such that it's never too late for a miracle. However, while true faith does not and should not and cannot, without being sinful, presume upon God and insist on a result or an answer we want or expect, while uh, we don't do that, true faith is open-ended, knowing that and relying that God can, in his time, do whatever he wants to do. Uh, and he will ultimately, whether or not now, later, whether or not in time, in eternity, whether or not on earth, in heaven, he's going to vindicate his purposes. He's going to satisfy us with good. He's going to vindicate his people. But in this case, God was pleased to supernaturally restore, keep Paul from being killed in the first place, and then supernaturally restore him to the extent that he could walk out of town the next day. Now, I think he's got scars that he retained. I don't think he's ever the same physically after this. I don't think he's, uh, let's say, 45 years old. I don't think he feels like a 20-year-old after this. He probably feels like an 89-year-old after this. But he keeps going anyway. But you know, a, a really good verse on what the way faith works that Joel Olstein will never quote you is from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've been talking about this a lot because it's so important. You know, they've, they've arrested these guys for not bowing down to what the government, worship the government, basically. And uh, they're going to throw them in the furnace, and they don't really want to because they're such good bureaucrats. They really, they really could use them. So they're trying to talk them out of it, the, the powers that be. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, in effect, you know, if it be so, if it's God's will, if it's his timing, will, and way, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace. See that? able to do that. We believe that. We know that. But we don't know if he wants to or not. But even if he does not, we don't know what his purpose is in this or not. But even if he does not, we're still going to do the right thing. Now, the word faith people say that can't be faith because you've got to name it and claim it and just assume what you want is yours before you get it and then God's forced to hand it over to you. That's not the way it works. And do you think God honored these people's faith a little bit? God's very pleased with their faith. No problem there. In this case, this is not saying that any time anybody is persecuted for their faith, they might try to kill you, but you won't die, and within 24 hours you can walk out of town. That's not what this is teaching. This is describing this incident, which is very unique, and it really happened, but it's not saying it's a normative pattern. Now, some people, because of things Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, hey, I don't want to brag here, so let me just put it this way. I know a guy who died and got to see what heaven's like. And it was so incredible, we don't even have categories to tell you how great it is. And then his spirit went back in his body and he got resuscitated. And to keep him from being arrogant and proud because of this amazing, overwhelming experience, 
he has been given a thorn on the flesh, which I prayed for, and it hasn't gone away. So he's kind of using third person, because he's not wanting to brag about it, and then he kind of gives the deal away. It really was him. Uh, now this would seem like, this would be a, probably a place where this could have happened. Maybe they thought he was dead. Maybe he was dead. Maybe that's when he had the near-death experience that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 12, first part of that chapter, the, the, the timing doesn't work out. He talks about 14 years after such and such, this happened, and the timing doesn't work out. So this is not him actually dying. And I think, by the way, Luke, who's writing this, the human author, what does he do for a living? He's a doctor. So he's just saying, he's probably interviewed some of the people who are there. And said, and they, the crowds thought he was dead. And this has happened, by the way. You know, um, as recently as one of the, one of the bad, uh, crazy, mass murders that happened in the last year. I remember seeing one of the survivors interviewed, and, and she was a female, and she said, yeah, I just I laid down and pretended like I was dead. You know, you can, you can do that. And in World War II, there were a lot of cases where people just, as the Japanese assumed everybody in the was not moving was dead, they went on and somebody you know, took a lot. And they actually were not dead, but they uh, were able to recover things like that. So that can happen. That's what happened here. But here's the thing. Uh, However, the timing and dating of this event, uh, even though the timing and dating of this event doesn't allow it to fit 2 Corinthians 12, we do know that for every believer, if you're a believer in Christ, put your name in the blank, physical death is to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord. How do I know that? Because 2 Corinthians in King James uses that terminology, which I love. Um, we need to be looking forward to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord, and really in the very presence of the Lord, something like that. While we're at home in the body, we're absent physically from the Lord. We look forward ultimately to be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. That's what physical death is. And here's the thing. Uh, as believers, if you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you have a righteous standing in Christ that is going to allow him to welcome you into heaven. I love Romans 5 and 8. <coughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith, who did, who did our faith, who was our faith directed toward when we were justified? The person of Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. It's on me. I can't fix it. Guilt and inability. You're a GI. Guilt and inability. Christ is the only one who can. Why? He lived a perfect, righteous life. He died as a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice on the cross. Solomon, everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus Christ paid for on the cross on April 3rd, 33 AD. And then he rose again from the dead. He was dead. And as Cooper, who was playing with the Evangel Cube a few months ago, said, and then he came alive again. you got a three-year-old kid having his mind blown at the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And it is a mind-blowing thing. And no, Richard Dawkins, we can't reproduce it in the laboratory for you, but it really happened. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not only might have, could have, hold on to peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation for Bo West or Jenny Heath or Gene Shallot or much more importantly, James Mitchell or Brad McCoy for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absent from the body, facing a Savior who's going to welcome us home because we've been designed for a person in a place and the place ain't here. I like what Jesus himself says. Everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day.
So I don't think that uh, the stoning here, which didn't cause his death, but close to it, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't, is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 12. But here's something I do know. Paul talks about this event in the first letter he writes after this event. Okay, uh, Just a few months after the end of the first missionary journey, he writes his first epistle. First missionary journey, one epistle, Galatians. Second missionary journey, two epistles, first and second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, three epistles, first and second Corinthians and Romans. This is the first missionary journey we're studying in Acts. Right after it's over in Antioch, he writes the book of Galatians. And at the end of the book of Galatians, just a few months after the Antioch, Iconium, Lister, and Derby are the Galatian churches, he says, and they're, they're wondering about the, the dynamics of grace and the gospel. And he says, from now on, don't really second guess me about this, because in addition to having direct revelation from Christ himself, I was stoned in Lystra. Man, I have, I've got, I got purple hearts. I've got multiple purple hearts. I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And I don't know if you've read that before or noticed that closely, but he's talking about all of the uh, permanent scarring he got from being stoned in Lystra in their midst, in the midst of the Galatian churches. In 2 Corinthians 11, he lists, in fact, let's look at that one real quick. We've got 10 more minutes here. Um, 2 Corinthians 11. If you're feeling sorry for yourself, read 2 Corinthians sometimes. He lists like three lists of all the stuff he has to put up with. And it's crazy. You, you kind of, I think we kind of sanitize our biblical heroes. We forget these people didn't know how it's all going to turn out. But he says, uh, when you're listening to false teachers that telling you telling you that Paul didn't know what he's talking about, uh, that are kind of in it for the money, uh, I'm just going to start with verse 24. He says, look, not only am I speaking the truth, I'm paying the price for those people. If you haven't noticed, let me remind you, five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Where was he stoned? Say Lystra, right? We just read about it. Three times shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. I mean, just going through the airports is a hassle, right? In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure, and at every pastor's conference, somebody reads that, and then they say, and apart from those little things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. And, huh? Yeah, that's, that's what he said. And then in Second Timothy, which he knows, the last thing he writes just before he's executed, he's thinking back 20 years before uh, of all the price he's paid. And if you're just an observer watching this, you say, God can't be on that guy's side. Look at all the bad stuff that's happening to him. But he had the very heart of the gospel. He was the apostle to the, uh, to the uh, Gentiles. When persecutions and sufferings such as has happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. When, where do you read about Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra in the Bible? First missionary journey, right? Harmony, Acts 13, 14. Persecutions I endured, and the Lord got me through all of them. Uh, take this to heart. You know, we've been designed spiritually for a person and a place. That place is heaven, not earth. That person 
is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the lover of our souls, uh, the issue and the issuer of eternal life for all who believe in him. Uh, man, you got to love that. Uh, I want to give you a quote from, about Major League Baseball, uh, some, a famous quote about Major League Baseball. And for some of you who don't know that much about Major League Baseball, uh, let me put this in context. Uh, Major League Baseball is made up of the best baseball players in the world. They compete against one another in a grueling sport, which includes 162 regular season games. That's a lot of games. Not to mention spring training and exhibition games, and for those who make the postseason, multiple playoff games. And then for the last two teams standing, they play up to seven games in the World Series. So with that in mind, one sports writer once said, describing Major League Baseball, he said, it's a hard game played by hard men. Moving from the game of baseball to the game of life, life on earth is hard for everybody. You either die young or you grow old and then you die. Short of the rapture generation itself, the only way out of the status quo, which is a French word meaning the mess we's in, the only way out of the status quo is through the threshold of death. And so death comes to all the sons of Adam. There are no exceptions. Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed unto human beings once to die, and after that, the judgment, a personal moral reckoning with the God who gave us life and breath. The good news is this judgment described in Hebrews 9 for all the human race always involves a not guilty verdict verdict for those who have trusted in Christ. By His grace, we will live forever in the blessed presence of our God and Savior. And there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. It's going to be a place in which all the wrongs we suffer on earth will be righted. All the scars, physical and emotional, we've borne will be totally healed. You know, if you've not received Jesus Christ, today can be the day of redemption for you. Say, I don't have enough faith. Just give them all the faith you've got. God's doing all kinds of crazy things behind. Common grace, efficacious grace, opening up your eyes so you can see and believe. Just go for it, baby. Doubt your doubts and trust Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, and I'll close with this. If you saw this a few weeks ago, don't answer. But this is a thought experiment. Don't, don't answer out loud. What is that? Just, you know, I would say, I, I'm colorblind, so I can't describe the colors. But I, that was like a mess. That was like a mess. A lot of loose threads. Uh, there's some burlap there, whatever it is. You know, and, uh, just, it kind of looks like my hair about 40 years ago when I actually had hair. I had hair like that. Just for like two weeks until my dad came home. But, uh, you know what that is? That's that. That's the backside of that. Now, the more I look at that, and the, the, if you're listening to the recording, we're looking at a tapestry from the front and back. And this tapestry has a little uh, angel floating above a king and some, all kinds of craziness. I'm not sure what it is. I'm, I'm not, you know, the, uh, the leadership of PBF does not necessarily affirm whatever the picture is trying to teach. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not probably going to find out some, some satanic thing. 
something. I don't know what it is. I just did a Google search, front and back of tapestry, and this was the most colorful one I could find. But let me suggest, as we look up at heaven, from the mess we's in, a lot of times it looks like that. That's what it looks like. It, we don't have enough information to second-guess God. We don't see how all those threads could be meaningful or significant or positive in any way. But let me suggest that when you get to heaven and you look back down, you're going to see that. And this is the way God sees it from the, from the beginning. That's the way we tend to see it just because of our position on earth. That's the way God sees it. Uh, you connect that with that through faith until you get to heaven. And even if we, the stuff we didn't understand and could never get over with, once we look back through it, the child who was molested and the, the war that happened here and the abortion that happened here will ultimately make sense in a way we can uh, rest in forever. But I think that's a very helpful analogy. Quite often looking up and around, life looks like that. Can you relate to that, Janice? God says, trust me, it looks like this from my side of the equation. You're just going to have to believe me. Uh, the now, life on earth is real, and it's really important, but it's not ultimate, and it's only temporary. Everything you can see or touch is fragile and has an expiration date and will go away. Therefore, believers must fix our eyes beyond the now. I think somebody once said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and completer of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. And that's the one who's waiting for us. So because of him, for believers, death is an enemy, but it's not the end. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, because of your grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can have hope in a dying, black, perverted, broken, painful, wicked world. And when we think that we ourselves contribute to that on a regular basis, it's shameful and it's embarrassing. But help us through the eyes of faith to realize that you are, through your purpose for time and eternity, weaving a tapestry that we will be in uh, amazement with as we get on your side of the equation someday and have it explained to us. So maybe we'll have the capacity then to see the full picture as we look back. Uh, forgive us for taking life for granted, uh, for taking those around us for granted. And forgive us for uh, maybe not being more excited and more motivated to live and share the gospel to a world that needs to hear this saving message. We pray this in Jesus' name.